Thank you. Oh, God's here. Well, now that we are alert, because today's um, topic requires us to be alert, and we're welcome, welcoming all new recruits <laughs> to the Ananda Ego Detective Agency. And so we have behind us the founding members and very few people who've actually solved the case of this ego. <laughs> but, you know, as new recruits, we're young and we're excited and we're ready to take on the case of our lifetime and see if we're able to ourselves get to the bottom of it. Now, the tricky part about this case or about this investigation is like any investigation, you need a suspect and then you need, of course, the investigating officer. And over here, the suspect is the ego. But the officer is also the ego. <laughs> it's like, who's really gonna catch whom? That becomes this really confusing thing on the spiritual path. The very ego we are trying to overcome is being overcome by the ego itself. So it's kind of like, kahan se dekhe isko? And of course, so it's helpful to, for us to just return back to just a deeper understanding of the ego because it gets really convoluted, you know, and sometimes um, the very convolution and the confusion of our understanding makes it harder for us to know how really am I to work on this. So the ego, if I think about the ego, to me it feels like it's really a spectrum of awareness, you know, and it's a moving spectrum. And not only is it a moving spectrum, it can happen on just, you know, it, it's not just one spectrum either. That's what allows us to both have an ego and see an ego. Because the ego itself could kind of divide up if it needs to. And this spectrum is really a point of reference. It's a point of reference of how we perceive the world. It's a point of reference on how we experience the world. And this is the point of reference we're trying to figure out. Where is it coming from? Now, we've got two ways in this spectrum. One, it could be coming from a singular point of view. Or as our Guru Paramahansa Yogananda would say, when you get into cosmic consciousness, how he would define it, he said, it's a state of center everywhere, circumference nowhere. So what does that mean? Center everywhere. This point of reference is not limited to just one reality. It becomes centered in everything. So suddenly, right now, my point of reference is me, this body. But imagine if I had the point of reference of this glass and the water in it. Imagine if I had the point of reference of this harmonium. If I had the point of reference of Narayani, of this tree, of this guitar, if you can see it. If I had the point of reference of the grass, uh, at my feet. So that's center everywhere, where your point of reference could be absolutely everywhere and anywhere. And then circumference nowhere means that all of that is happening simultaneously. <laughs> that you're not shifting your point of reference. Oh, now I want to become the glass and now I need to become... That at the same very moment, you have a point of reference of the sun, the planets, and you see the entire creation from each of those points of reference. So before our brain bursts from even trying to <laughs> comprehend what that might feel like, we come back to the little ego that we do have. 
And Yogananda's definition of the ego perhaps is always helpful to remind ourselves, which he says, the ego is just the soul falsely identified with the body. And by the body, he means everything that this body represents to us. It represents our personality, it represents our thoughts. I don't think my thoughts are manifesting from some other place. I, I feel for some reason somewhere inside me my thoughts are being created. Now the soul is falsely identified with this truth, with this reality. So let's imagine for a moment you get into your car. You're sitting in your car and suddenly you start identifying, you start thinking, I'm this car. And now if you think you're this car, what is it? You're not going to eat because you only want petrol. And you're not going to go into your house because you think you should live in a garage. You're no longer attracted to other human beings. You're attracted to other cars passing by or whistling at them. Um, as absurd as that would seem like for us to get into a car and suddenly start thinking, I am this car. That's how absurd imagine that the saints look at us and wonder, yeah, is this guy really think he's this body? I mean, does he really think he's just this personality? And that's what we're trying to figure out when we're talking about becoming an ego detective. Because this spectrum of awareness, this point of reference is not fixed. And it's up to us to move it wherever. And when that point of reference is kind of pushed towards strengthening and reinforcing a more limited view, that's what we would call kind of that egoic direction. And when that very point of reference is willing to let itself expand and go and release its hold on that limitation, that becomes the universal ego. No matter what we do, there will always be a sense of I. Even Krishna, when he would speak, says, I am the unmanifested. And so that ego really isn't just something to get away from. It is more a place to shift on our spectrum of awareness more and more, more and more towards being able to let go of the limitation of a singular point of reference. So that's what we are working with. And in this, as I said, we could become two different aspects. So that ego that is willing to let itself go watches the ego that wants to reinforce its own limitations. And these are the two individuals involved in this investigation case. You've got the little ego and you've got the great ego and both exist inside us simultaneously. And so now the great ego within us, the universal ego, the ego that wants to unite, begins to investigate and see what are the tendencies, what's forcing me to kind of go in this other direction. Why do I, despite my wanting to expand, continuously find myself in reinforcing my own limitations? That's the investigation we are on today. So first and foremost, as any suspect, we need to know where this suspect lives and what this suspect does. So where is the ego situated in our bodies? That's an important thing to know. Our Guru Paramahansa Yogananda said that that sense of I, that sense of individuality separate from everything else, rests physically at this point, at the base of our skull, where kind of on a physical level, 
it is represented by the medulla oblongata. Now you've heard us talk about the medulla before, especially if you've energized with us or when we talk about uh, in meditation. But again and again, it's important to come back because everything in this world has a physical counterpart. So for us to know, if we are to launch a successful investigation into the matter, we need to know ye banda rehta kahan hai. You know, where's his house? So I can put a surveillance team over there. And so the house is the medulla oblongata. Now if I think about the medulla on an energetic level, the medulla in fact is the Agya Chakra. Now that's something that's not again a very common knowledge. It's the Agya Chakra in the sense that it is the negative pole of this highest of chakras amongst us. So therefore this ego is not some random fellow. He's like a high-ranking official. <laughs> you know, he's one of the highest officials. He's the prime minister in our own consciousness. So we're going to have to launch an investigation against somebody really, really high up. So we have to have to be a little sly about it. So it's the Agya Chakra inside us. Now the medulla oblongata is one of the first cells, Yogananda, when he explains, when the sperm and the ovum unite at the point of conception, very soon when that um, soul enters into the being and begins to multiply, the first cells that are created are those of, are of the medulla. And so that's when the soul enters and creates this first identification. And it is from there that the brain and the nervous system then begin to develop and around which is the way that the ego can send life force and further entrench itself into the body. And then around that soul quality, it pretty much weaves a body that will most perfectly re reflect the ego and karmic tendencies of that particular life. So even your physical body to a certain degree is a reflection of that individual spark of divinity that rests within you, that has woven this body around you. So what does the medulla do? What is the medulla's kind of physical role? Because as we said, everything, when we talk about the chakras, each chakra has a physical counterpart. The, the muladhar is about the excretory system, it's about mobility, it's about the legs, it's about movement. You've got the swadhisthan, which is about the reproductive system. You've got the manipur, which is about our digestive system. You've got the anahat, which is the cardiac system. You've got the uh, vishuddha, which is of course our hormonal balance and of course our communicative system. And then you've got the medulla and then you've got the kuthastha both forming the Agya Chakra. Now the Kuthastha, of course, is our highest functioning. In a sense, it's our divine functioning. And the medulla is what connects the brain to the rest of the body through the spinal cord. So the medulla is like, it's like the communication gateway. Therefore, it's called the Agya Chakra. It gives permission for our lower tendencies, our human tendencies, our animal tendencies, our material tendencies to interact with our divine tendencies. And the medulla itself regulates our heart and the heartbeat, our cardiac systems, and it regulates our breathing systems. So the breath and the heartbeat are regulated by the medulla. Therefore, if you look at any yogic teaching, why is the breath such an important aspect 
of yoga, of meditation, of pranayam, it's because the medulla is reflected by our breath. When our breath gets agitated and gets restless, what does that mean to us? We know it means either we are worried, when our heartbeat starts pumping fast, it's either because we're worried, or we are irritated, or we are upset, or we're in stress, you know, or there's some anger that is starting to creep inside us. And anytime that happens, what does that mean? That means the medulla is trying for you to kind of relate to this limited identity more. When you're calm, do you think about yourself when you're calm? Do you think about yourself when you're joyful? Or do you only think about yourself when you get a little upset or when you get a little irritated? That's the kind of reins that the medulla has over us. Anytime it wants us to affirm our egoic identity, it will increase the flow of our breath and of our heartbeat, thereby creating a more contractive inward me, mine, what's a, you know, what do I need, how I have been treated in this moment. And the moment you are able to get your breath to slow down, your heartbeat to relax, that's when that spectrum of awareness begins to shift towards expansion. So it's right here on a physical level, our ability to control the ego's involvement is very much related to our breath and our heartbeat. Therefore, in deep meditation, what do we talk about? The goal of meditation is trying to achieve that state of breathlessness because only in breathlessness does the medulla's role switch off completely and when the medulla switches off completely all that energy between the spine and the brain now goes unimpeded up till this point the medulla is controlling kaha ja hai ye life force and where is it going and what is it strengthening but the moment we reduce and remove away the role of the medulla which will only happen when our breath comes to that absolute stillness, immediately that life force moves completely to the kuthasta. So in our first step of detecting and investigating, the most important and the simplest thing is to investigate our breath and if you're able to your own heartbeat. And that's the first thing. If you're at all feeling that the breath's getting agitated, the first thing to do that is the sign that the medulla is trying to reinforce, the egoic identity is trying to reinforce itself upon your consciousness. And immediately it will use these physical aspects of our own being to create that kind of limited perception of that moment. So that is why immediately coming to a breath awareness is our first step towards this. Now the interesting thing about the ego and uh, our Guru's explanation on the Bhagavad Gita on Mahabharata, he's given each of the, I mean it's not him who's given it, but of course he says each of the characters in the Mahabharata represent all aspects of our consciousness. And the ego is Bhishma, which is interesting because Bhishma is this noble character. So, because what I'm trying to say is ego is not a bad guy at all, he has nothing to do with it's really the other aspect. So Bhishma is there. What is Bhishma, the vow that he has taken? That he will not marry and he will not have children. But what does that vow mean? It means he will remain alone. And that's the ego's hallmark. That separation. Meh. Akela. 
So that's the Bhishma quality within us. What other boon does Bhishma have? That he will not die unless he willingly offers himself up. And the same is true of the ego. You cannot destroy it, you cannot break it, you cannot submit it. The ego itself must expand and willingly let go of that hold on that false identification it has created. So those are the two realities of Bhishma, but Bhishma is not the king. Somehow we think the ego is controlling it all, but the ego is not really controlling it all. The ego only supports the king. Who is the king in the Mahabharata? In name, the king is Dhritarashtra, who is blind. Dhritarashtra represents, Yogananda said, the blind mind. Means the mind that does not have any discrimination. That mind that is blind because it follows purely its reactive instincts. The triggers, gussa ho gaye, upset ho gaye, ab khush ho gaye, ab dukhi ho gaye. There's no discrimination on, this shouldn't touch me, oh this is not a big deal, oh that's alright. And so that blind mind, but is king only in name, who's really pulling the strings even behind him is his eldest son. And that is Duryodhan. And Duryodhan, Yogananda said, represents material desire. That delusion that in this world, by fully interacting in this world, will I find fulfillment. So, now we've got to look at, you've got Bhishma, you've got Dhritarashtra, you've got Duryodhan. So, Bhishma can only support during the war, Dhritarashtra and Duryodhan. But where Bhishma goes, everybody else also follows. If Bhishma had not supported the Kauravas, many of the other kings would not have supported them either. So, that's the role here. The ego is not so much the puppet master, but it'll support those tendencies that we already have inside us. So what we really need to do for the ego is to understand those tendencies and look at those tendencies. So what are the most simplest? You know, we're drawing a lot of what we're seeing from this beautiful book of Swamiji's called Sadhu Beware. And in this he has a chapter, Become an Ego Detective. That's where we kind of took the inspiration for the talk today. What are these tendencies that we're working with? They're really simple. The thing about ego transcendence is that it's not really that big a deal. <laughs> it's these simple things, it's these little things. It's actually the lower things that decide what the ego is going to manifest. So, you've got desire. Right, now how are we going to work with these tendencies? Desire is a big part of who we are and what we want. That desire is for, firstly, possessions. So anytime, Swamiji says, a desire to possess comes within you, what are you to do? We can't suppress our desires, you see. That does, this isn't how we'll be able to overcome them. We have to learn to transmute our desires. So a desire for possession, Swamiji tells this beautiful story of whenever that would come to him, he would immediately buy what he desires, but only so that he can gift it to somebody else. And he says, that way, momentarily, I would have the joy of possession and ownership. And then I would have the joy of giving it to somebody. And then I would have the joy of experiencing it when I, anytime I went to visit them. And he says, I got greater joy that way than just the limited self of that one possession. 
So every time, this is what the ego detective needs to do. He realizes, ah, that watch. Oh, that sari. Oh, that beautiful whatever. Rather than saying, no, I can't, I shouldn't. It should be, okay. Fulfill that desire immediately and offer it to somebody else. That's how that shift will happen from limited to an expanded. Like, oh, because Narayani is just a greater part of myself. So that's one thing, to work with our need to possess. Whatever de- what other desire do we have? We have the desire for recognition, don't we? And Swami tells this, <laughs> this one I love. He says, try never to tell a story whose main point is to make you look good. And when I read that, I just thought about it and I was like, we, it's just like, it's such a natural tendency, isn't it, to tell a story and, you know, we're not really thinking that we want to make ourselves look good, but somewhere in there, there's always this hidden agenda that at the end, you know, it's like you tell the story, you finish the story and you should just watch yourself. You look around and you look for people's approval. You have this little smirk on your face. And that's where the ego just has this subtle pull on you. So look for that. These are the things we need to become really aware of. Look for that tendency that anytime you want to tell a story, see what that the purpose of the story is. Is it to make you shine? Or is there a principle that you are trying to kind of convey through the story? Another fun thing about that I had a lot of fun with once is try to be quiet as often as you can in group settings and watch as conversations are happening. Watch how your mind, even while you are silent, will continue the conversation in your mind that people are having. You start giving answers to people's questions and conversations, even if you're not speaking. There's this innate desire within us to be heard. I remember when I went once on a a seclusion for 45 days where I held this silence, but I was walking through the Spain at that moment, just taking a long, long walk for 45 days in silence. And every night I'd stop in places where I was surrounded by people. And because I was in silence, every time I heard a conversation, somebody asking somebody something, my mind would immediately say, I know the answer to that. I could help them. When I'd hear, uh, you know, somebody trying to translate into Spanish something and not being able to understand, immediately my part of me would say, I could probably help this guy by telling him what, you know, what this means. And it was such an interesting thing for me to watch my mind. How it just has this innate desire to make itself known. So see in the next time, get into group, don't have to do it all the time, but every now and then sit in a group and just be quiet and watch how the mind naturally runs the same conversation, gives answers to all the questions that are taking place because of this innate desire to be, to place ourselves in recognition. So that's number three. Number four is one that was given to me by uh, Nayaswami Jaya in a, in a satsang once. And he said, never be the first person to complain. I love that one because again, it wasn't that don't complain, you should never complain. That's a very hard thing to do. But he says, don't be the first person to complain. After one person has complained, then if you want to kind of back him up, you may do so. But watch again that natural instinct to say, it's too hot. Ah, Oh, I'm really tired. 
जस्ट वॉच फॉर दैट टेंडेंसी एंड वेट टू सी कौन बंदा पहले बोलेगा वेन वी वर इन द मोनेस्ट्री अर्लियर ऑन आफ्टर दिस सत्संग वी प्लेड अ फन गेम आउट ऑफ वीज टू गो इन दिस रियली रियली अनकम्फर्टेबल कार and after that satsang all of us would wait to see who would be the first one to say it's too hot or the you know drive slowly because it's really bumpy or whatever it is and all of us would kind of hold to see who's going to be the first one to do that and those are the really fun ways that we become aware of that natural tendency to contract in towards ourselves to limit our point of reference or to expand our point of reference and these are just some really really simple things you can do that's the beauty of the path in general it's not about those cosmic moments it's really about these tiny moments and these are just some four that we've kind of off the fly come up with i'm sure you can come up with a hundred more that you can do on your own and i encourage you to become that ego detective and just watch and find the patterns that's what an investigator does when he wants to catch a suspect he looks for the patterns and our patterns are our natural tendencies so watch them and then see how you might shift that spectrum of awareness rather towards a limitation towards a greater sense of expansion god bless you we all know that the ego is not just one thing it manifests itself on so many different levels at the physical level the ego expresses itself through our body and through the bodily activity at an emotional or feeling level the ego expresses itself by relating absolutely everything back to itself the ego is the center of attention and everything that happens to him matters and matters very much and then of course when the ego expresses itself at the thought or mental level is when we start having those thoughts of separation between us and the world around us and everything evolves around i me and mind so as we can see when the ego expresses itself on so many multiple levels it's very important for us to identify and to use these expressions and channel them in a very unique way that will help us to transcend the ego and the rishis saw that they saw that this journey it's so complicated it's so difficult so they kind of created all these paths of yoga in order to help us to transcend the ego at those particular levels so if you think Uh, how to transcend the ego at a physical level we have the path of karma yoga it's the path of action and we use our body as a tool to achieve something to accomplish something 
The problem comes when in the process of achieving something, the thoughts of I did that, I accomplished that, that was my idea, I made it happen. The moment those thoughts come into our mind, we have to substitute them immediately with the thought of God did it through me. He gave me the idea. He flowed through me. He gave me the creativity, the willingness, the enthusiasm, the energy to accomplish that. I was thinking that every superhero has a specific power. And our power is when God takes over us and flows through us and achieves that activity. That's our real power. The ego loves to take the credit for absolutely everything. It's just even things that the ego has not accomplished. <laughs> so Swami Kriyananda gives a very unique technique. In fact, any moment you are being praised for anything that you have done, yes, accept that compliment gratefully, but be extra careful that in your heart you are offering that credit to God, where it truly belongs. And it's an act of constant reminder of where that credit, where that praise needs to, needs to go. And it's very important for us to keep that in mind because in fact, when we have done something that perhaps has taken us hours and no one has noticed, no one has complimented you for that. Say nothing. And just rest in that consciousness that brings the thought of just what a joy it was to do something with God, for God. I mean, does God need to shout, you know, from the rooftops, the very fact that he's holding this universe together? No. So might as well to follow his example and be humble and just find ways to transcend the ego through the path of karma yoga by offering everything to God and really allowing him to flow through us. He is the doer. And that's something that we need to almost tattoo those words into our heart, into our spiritual eye. Another opportunity to transcend the ego at an emotional or at a feeling level is through the path of bhakti yoga. It's a path of devotion. And what is really devotion? To me, devotion is an act of giving. It's an act of offering yourself completely to somebody or to something. It's an act of being devoted to become one, to unite yourself with the object 
of your devotion. And, and that act of offering yourself, it really attracts an instant transcending of the ego because it has nothing to do with you being separated from anybody else. It's, it's the ability to keep uniting yourself again and again and again in that process of becoming one with that object or with that person, in this case, uniting yourself with God through your love. So anytime, just watch out for, am I giving myself completely to, do, to this situation? And I would say Swami Kriyananda gives a fantastic practice for this. He says, every time that you find yourself a little bit aloof or you know not wanted to be too involved in a specific situation or perhaps too indifferent with what's going around you just you know that's the moment to act and very quickly and he says if you feel yourself you are distancing you know way too much creating that wall of separation just do something that will integrate you completely with the world around you. If you are with people, just involve yourself in that situation. Just make an energetic exchange with the people around you. Try to unite, try to um, sympathize with their realities. Try to see what they are talking about. How can you add your heart's feelings and try to understand, understand where are they coming from? From he said, even if you, even when you cannot say anything outwardly, inwardly visualize from your heart threads of light that are connecting you from your heart to the heart of those around you. I mean, what a beautiful, powerful visualization to keep us um, uniting ourselves with absolutely everyone around us. So check throughout the day for those moments when you really would like to run away from a situation, when you become too uninterested or when you think that's not too spiritual or that's not too interesting. That, that's when the ego comes in and starts, you know, separating you, making you feel more important than anything and anybody else because the ego loves to be exclusive. He likes to be unique and he likes to be separate. So watch out for those moments where you really need to make an extra effort and find ways to blend, to unite your energy with God, which is absolutely in everything and in everyone. And then, of course, we have the path of Jnana Yoga. And that's another wonderful path that we can use to transcend the ego. The path of Jnana Yoga uses the tool of introspection. And we can see that throughout the day, 
there are moments where we try to understand what has happened to us, why we went through that misunderstanding, misunderstanding. When was that moment that we felt in disharmony with somebody or with a situation? Why that particular project didn't come in the way I thought it should come out? So it's very important for us to introspect and analyze certain situations in order to improve our lives, in order to change certain tendencies within ourselves. The problem comes when, when we throw through that experience trying to understand, we analyze and we judge certain situations and we start giving more emphasis how that situation, how that person affected me, how I was hurt how I reacted to that, how that person related to me. So we give too much emphasis and concentrate so much in the I that we forget what was the overall lesson in that particular situation. So I would say when you are introspecting at what any moment of the day, especially at the end of the day or at the end of your meditation. Make sure that you concentrate in the overall movie, in the overall plot of the situation, rather than focusing only on one actor that in that case is you. So forget about you and try to remove that ego and see what was happening here. What was the lesson that I wasn't able to fully grasp? And start perceiving your life as see the bigger picture. And every time that you see that from the bigger picture, you are going too much of, and on how things affected you, that's the moment to stop and redirect your way of perceiving a situation. Swami Kriyananda says, impersonalize your perceptions. So the Yana Yoga path is when we need to bring more impersonality to our perception about life, about people, and above all, about ourselves. Because again, the ego loves to be unique. And those are the things that if we really want to transcend the ego, we need to pay close attention and use these tools because at any given moment, we can really access to these paths of yoga and use them um, as tools to really transcend the ego because when we can't use our body, we can use the path of bhakti yoga and use our devotion when we can't use you know the path of bhakti yoga because we are we too restless perhaps we need to channel through the path of jnana yoga and bring more discrimination and impersonalize certain situations so you can see throughout the day each one of us go through this moments where we are sometimes more active or more introspective 
or more loving or more dedicated more committed so use these moments and really make stepping stones to achieve that goal that we all are trying to accomplish on the spiritual path which is really to transcend the ego and put the ego aside i think it was yogananda who says no actually it's it's a sentence a quote that says when the ego steps in god steps out so this will be you know um um, kind of a practice that we'll need to go throughout the day and see any moment wow it's the ego now in and it's got out so let me just uh, adjust those changes but the beautiful thing is like every day is truly an opportunity to transcend the ego to improve ourselves and to use all the tools accessible to really make permanent changes in our consciousness. Jai Guru.